Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is going to be a question and answer podcast. We received three questions from uh, some followers. Again, all of you always feel free to submit questions or requests for videos, things like that. I'll always do my best to address them. Uh, again, before we go on, please consider donating towards our efforts through our Patreon account. Uh, information for that will be in the episode notes. Those funds go a long way into helping us maintain uh, this effort, continue it, develop it, and make it better. So for those that have been doing that for a while now, we greatly appreciate you. Um, this is really not possible without your, your donation there. So with all humility, thank you so much for your support. We'll go over the questions as I receive them. We have three in total, and they're all uh, coming from different angles of how to develop an Aikido practice uh, along the lines that you see through all of our uh, social media dissemination of information. Here's question one. Uh, Hi, David. A subject that I don't believe I have heard you address directly is money. I've heard you speak much of how it is the Western or American religion. Do you have words of advice for the modern Budoka uh, in order to navigate this subject while rejecting the practice of money as a religion? How best do I reconcile this subject in my daily life? I am a father of two and the breadwinner in a single income family of four. Let's set up some context here and retouch on some of the things that have been said throughout this podcast history and also some of the writings and the blog writings so the blog writings on our website and then the writings that i often post on our facebook page if you're not following those things i highly recommend it again i kind of just use the medium that best suits the the information i tend not to uh, reproduce things uh, across the board so let's start with defining some, some key words in the question. One is religion. Um, as I've always said, you have to kind of do an archaeology of ideas in order to get back to any kind of utilitarian or practical uh, understanding of what Aikido or Budo is. So you cannot use the modern understanding of the word religion. You have to go back in history. Uh, this is because we have a kind of cultural problem that is in terms of space. So uh, Budo comes from East Asia. Uh, Westerners are not familiar, uh, and I would say East Asians are not familiar either for the most part, with their own cultural history. So you cannot just look at it at face value because you're going to look at it through the eyes, so to speak, of your own Western culture. And you're going to come up with an entirely different understanding, a very incorrect one. 
And then, of course, uh, ideas change through time, as language does as well. So you not only have this kind of cross-cultural obstacle to things, but you also have this historical obstacle to things. And so I described getting past the cross-cultural or the cross-historical barriers. I described that uh, using Foucault's term, Michel Foucault, archaeology. A person has to do an archaeology to understand the actual context for the practice of Aikido or Budo. So when we talk about religion, uh, and we don't want to go into this into too great a detail, listen to the other episodes, read those other writings if you want to, uh, but just simply put, religion was originally understood as your kind of central thesis or central principle to your life as a paradigm. So... Um, what is motivating you, what is uh, bringing a semantic field to your experience of the world, um, what is at the core of all your psychology, your emotional um, experience of the world, your ideas of the world, your practice of the world, what is at the core of your life as it is given as a whole, that is religion. So hence it is very possible as in the question to speak of money as a person's religion, uh, as it would be to somebody who's practicing what is today recognized as a religion, such as Christianity. However, in the latter case, we would stick to the original meaning of the word, and there are many Christians um, who, in modern terms, we would say you, pra- you are practicing a religion, but in an archaeology derived understanding of the word religion, we would say, no, you're not practicing your Christianity as a religion because it's not meeting that centrality. An additional component of doing an archaeology of the concept or the word or the discourse or the practice of religion is to get past what modernity has done with that history. And so for the most part, modernity has made religion a kind of ideational thing. Uh, This has to do with uh, theories of salvation, so teriology, also theories of self, ontology, that the West ended up developing for the most part during the Enlightenment. And that has hugely come on to affect how people think of religion as well. Not only is there an absence of centrality uh, to it, but it's coming with a particular theory of what a human organism is. And for the most part today, um, religion is very ideational. It, it has been um, separated from its body practices. Um, so just, you know, it's not uncommon whatever the tradition is today, to uh, sit in a chair in a lecture hall and to learn uh, from somebody by sitting still and listening to them. That is a, a very, very new concept uh, in human, the human history of religion. And uh, as a result, uh, the transformative energy of religion is just not there anymore for the simple reason than that we are more than our intellect, 
uh, it's impossible to separate the mind from the body, and also any kind of intellectual grasping that we might be able to obtain uh, via a discourse or a philosophy or a sermon only goes so deep into our being, and as a result, there's often more places in our life where that teaching cannot function in that central um, spot in our kind of, you know, our paradigm existence. It just doesn't function there. In past episodes, I've pointed out um, several things that have developed upon this idea. Um, some of them are, for example, I think you can look at, at ideational um, popular people. So there's people in our present world, especially in the United States, who have just ran hook, line, and sinker with this, with this ideational understanding of bringing some sort of central focus to one's life. And uh, you can see that it's not working. It doesn't work because there's just too much left off the table. And here I would put people, and I have put people, like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. Even though they're on opposite sides of the ideational spectrum, you can see that uh, they're just not well because there's lots of their body-mind, there's lots of their human beingness that is being left off the table. It's being, um, their, their teaching, so to speak, is just functioning at an intellectual idea uh, level, and it just doesn't function there. It just doesn't work. I've said the same thing about Aikido. Um, for most people, uh, Aikido as a spiritual cultivation or as a technology of self, as I've described it. Again, another term by Michel Foucault. Um, it's very just ideational, and so it doesn't really function. So, you know, some of the, the dojo that I've traveled in, in the world, uh, and I think anyone can have this experience, um, dojo that are very much into the idea of non-contestation and, and mutual peace, uh, non-aggression, etc. They're often the most aggressive people uh, if things don't go well in their pairing. So if Uke doesn't uh, throw themselves, for example, whether it is because they just don't want to participate in such foolishness, or because they don't know that they, here's here, my friend, is where you're supposed to throw yourself. Uh, they can't really address it without the emotionally immature responses of anger and and labeling them as an asshole or the frustration that suits that sits in and things like that. It's it's not a very viable kind of philosophy outside of very idealized conditions. As I've mentioned elsewhere, an, another example of that is you could very easily have a kind of philosophy of non-contestation. And, you know, if the conditions are not stressful enough, you can probably call upon it uh, through some sort of metacognition. But if the situation or the environment is stressful enough, you'll see that you won't have access to that. And this is, for example, how we might be blowing up at our spouse 
um, in, and to our surprise. Do you see? That's how that happens. So all this to say uh, and to take the listener back to um, our four disciplines. We have to have a body practice because we cannot separate the mind and the body, but also because this is historically the way pre-modern cultures brought a transformation to the practitioner. It is, you cannot use the mind to change the mind. Uh, and so therefore, you need to use the body to change the mind. Because although why, while we cannot separate the body-mind, uh, the body is not synonymous with the mind or vice versa. So this allows for, on the one hand, a limit. You must do both. Your, your practice must involve both the body and the mind. But uh, it also allows for a benefit. You can cultivate a transformation in the mind by cultivating a transformation in the body. So we cannot just talk about non-contestation, harmony, aiki. You cannot just do that. And as a result, you have to have a body practice, and towards that end, you cannot just have a body practice that is consisting of the very rituals that assume that you've already transformed yourself. It's, it doesn't work that way. So, and to the point, Aikido Kihon Waza is what most people do, even those that talk about Aikido as a way um, or as a Budo. So when we use the word a way, uh, we're talking about a central uh, idea, a central body practice, both to your life. So when we talk about a way, we're talking about historically a religion. But to have your your way consisting only of kihonwaza is just an insufficient, let's call it a training. It's just poor training for the simple reason that kihonwaza are as if rituals and they have a very, very small opportunity for transformation especially as they are practiced today. So for the most part, as they are practiced today, they adopt the modern episteme, which allows them to, and actually forces them, to only function as metaphors or symbols. What do I mean by that? I mean that the, the patterns of kihonwaza, let's, let's just take uh, ikkyo, for example, the patterns of kihonwaza will have some external matching of yin and yang energy, but because they only function externally and because they do not function internally, eventually you're going to see yang-yang conflicts that are going unnoticed and the reason they go unnoticed is because the, the technique only requires a symbolic or metaphorical, uh, what do I want to say, 
a kind of entity. That's all. It, it only needs to be a symbolic or a metaphorical entity. It doesn't actually have to be anything more than that. So, for example, you might see a yin yield to the Nage's original yang pressing. Uh, but sometimes you don't. Sometimes you'll see where people are like pulling the uke into some supposed state of kazushi. But whether you pull the uke into some sort of, uh, you know, you're pulling them into some false kazushi or you yin yield them into some sort of kazushi, eventually all of these aikidoka start doing yang-yang clashes. So they are now pushing on a person's elbow that is not going down until you push on it. Well, that's a yang-yang clash. Um, and so because we're just playing a language game of sorts, we can sort of make up what parts we pay attention to and what parts we don't. And you, you will see even in these uh, understandings of Aikido, what I call, again, yang-yang clashes in some very overt ways, uh, such as the block that I've spoken many times, the block on Yoko Menuchi, or the addressing of Uke Shomenuchi on the way down. If you're looking at it beyond a metaphor or uh, a symbolism or something like that, these contradictions are unacceptable and they're just proof that you don't understand what's going on. Um, and they also make sense to a valid or an authentic practitioner of Aikido why people that are only experiencing the art as a symbol or as a metaphor are unable to actually harmonize yin and yang because this is only uh, functioning at the level of language. Therefore, it's only functioning at the level of the intellect and it will never go deep enough. Um, language in itself is binary, is a binary construct. So you have, you are experiencing the art through a dichotomous mind and there's no way that the dichotomous mind isn't eventually going to contradict itself. So people that are moving past language and the symbol and the metaphor of Aikido Kihonwaza are doing something entirely different. But in order to do something entirely different, they can't just do Aikido Kihonwaza nor, in particular, Aikido Kihonwaza as a metaphor or as a symbol for some higher ideal, uh, such as non-contestation or harmony or reconciling yin and yang. So those people are going to develop a body practice beyond Kihonwaza. And this is where I've mentioned before, this is where those four disciplines come in. Uh, some other things that go with it is you're not going to be training a few hours a week or a few days a week. There's no way. Uh, first of all, if you go back to what religion means, uh, that leaves four days and most of those remaining three days are now centered on something else. So <laughs> there's no way you're practicing the art as a way. But... Um, Aside from those four disciplines, which I'll briefly mention here, um, your, your fitness or your conditioning, your nutrition, your sleep hygiene, and then your worldview, 
There is a fifth practice that is not really mentioned in the four disciplines because it's not really something that you use to cultivate your own body-mind uh, directly. It's, it's an additional practice, just like uh, Zazen would be an additional practice or prayer would be an additional practice. Uh, and that is the practice of service or servitude. This practice is, as I am describing it in various, you know, articles or podcasts or things like that, it's really just karma, karma yoga, which is really first discussed in great detail. So it, it was, of course, discussed prior to this, but in great detail, uh, very easy to access what it is would be in the Bhagavad Gita. So karma yoga is where your job, whatever it may be, is brought into your religious practice as a whole. And there's some key concepts in karma yoga that you have to uh, understand. And I think they're what, is, what most people take out of the Bhagavad Gita in karma yoga. And the first one is, uh, you are not attached to the fruits of your labor. And so in that, there's a couple assumptions that you want to pull out. One, your job has a gravity to it. It's a worldly gravity, and it's going to pull you uh, toward it and away from the way. This then is seen as a kind of stressor, as you try to maintain the way, and by that, you now have the stress adaptation model, which is a training model, which is a cultivation model. So as your job pulls you into its own gravitational field, uh, you get to practice this non-attachment, and as a result, you get to cultivate your non-attachment. And this is described in the Gita as not being attached to the fruits of your labor. So you do your job, but you're not attached to the end results of your job. So some of the common things uh, in those kind of gravitational fields in our career would be, of course, obviously the money, right? But also um, promotion, reputation, um, support. Uh, validation, social validation, and things like that. Uh, this is why I describe it not openly as karma yoga, and I use the word servitude, okay? The way what I'm trying to pull out of that is while you're not going to be attached to the fruits of your labor, is in order to generate more non-attachment, uh, you're going to have to generate more non-attachment towards the ego and towards egocentric behaviors. And one of the most powerful tools you can use in generating that is the idea of yourself as servant. So you're there to help everyone. You're not there to help yourself. Um, a, a very easy um, way of getting that going is to have a philosophy of just saying yes. So in your workplace, 
people are going to always ask things for you from you uh want this project or that project or that task or this task and your response is going to always be yes it's always going to be an affirmation and you take on the work and so between these two things non-attachment to the results of your labor and then also a a a, a pre-staged yes with the idea that you're here to serve others uh, helps bring your job into your training because one of the goals of your training is to bring a cessation to the ego tripartite mind which is a cessation to the egoic reaction to the world in which we live now one might listen to this and think Oh, I'm just going to be a pushover, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm I'm going to end up working too much, and it's going to cut into my family time, uh, and people are just going to take advantage of me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But all of these things are only manifestations of that egoic mind. Once you learn and develop this skill in both servitude and unattachment to the fruits of your labor. You'll see, just like you would in your, in your application of your art, that it just works out. It's the exact opposite happens. Um, of course, there's a lot of faith in there because when you come to this kind of practice, you're not skilled at it and you always are functioning through the egoic mind and it doesn't work out because the egoic mind can only experience all of these things as people are trying to take advantage of me, I'm working too much, etc., etc. Um, but if you look at the pre-modern textual evidence, you'll, you'll see constant reference to the idea uh, that it just works out. So you have, for example, in Taoism, you have Wu Wei. Uh, things just get done. Or in the gospel where, where Jesus is talking about um, if God takes care of these birds, uh, then how much more you? Uh, that Things just work out. And very much if you are in... Um, let's say you're doing Jiwaza or a Newaza role. Um, if you just don't get attached and don't enter into an egoic state and you don't contest, uh, your technique just reveals itself. You don't have to force it. It just happens. Um, that is definitely one of the identifiable hallmarks of such a mature practice, of a, of a practice that is mature at this level. Things just work out. Um, but when I use the word faith, I think you have to understand it that it's not like magic. We're not talking about magic. Um, or we're not talking about the secret. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about... Uh, in essence, a kind of reorganizing of our experience of the world to such a degree that the openings that we were blind to or the opportunities that we were blind to because we were experiencing the world egoically now present themselves 
and we now have access to those things. And you'll see uh, from an egoic point of view, it, you'll have some sense that it just worked out. I don't know why it worked out, but it just worked out. This is how I advise my own deshi on how to understand their job, their career. Go do it. Do it to the fullest of your ability. Uh, do it beyond even what others are capable of doing it at. Um, do it in, with excellence in mind, but without an attachment to the fruits of that effort. Okay? That's important. We're not talking about not caring about your work performance. We're not talking about apathy. Apathy is just the flip side of attachment. It's the same egoic coin. You have to give it your all without any attachment to the results. You will find that very, very difficult as or in proportion to your wavering in the four disciplines. So, for example, if you have poor sleep hygiene, uh, you'll find that it's very difficult to let go of those gravitational worldly um, forces in your career. So it's very, very difficult to not want to have social validation and social recognition just because you're, you're suck at your sleep hygiene, right? Same thing goes with fitness. Same thing uh, goes with your, your nutrition, uh, your worldview, remember the worldview is that everything is changing, everything is interrelated. Um, the better you are practicing those four disciplines, the better you'll see that you can develop the skill of releasing of unattachment or detachment, right, and acceptance. So it all goes together. So short answer uh, go back to the Gita and bring some karma yoga into how you understand your need, because everyone does have that need, right? Your need for uh, financial means, financial support. Uh, otherwise, without understanding your career as a opportunity for karma yoga, you'll see that the your career will take you. It'll take you. It's a gravitational force and it'll take you and it'll move you away from a reconciliation of the ego to an egoic blindness, um, what past traditions would clearly identify as a life in hell. The second question, here it is. Dave, I want to share this with you. One of my students, who is the one who has been with me the longest, and of course has always had my style of technique, has now many problems to understand and change to the technique that I now try to do through my study with you. This is not acceptable or adequate because being the oldest student usually helps me in class so meaning this person helps with the running of the dojo or sometimes stays with some do uh, sometimes helps with the dojo schedule etc but it turns out that now those who have less time than him training learn faster and more easily the teachings that you have now given me but this um this makes me worry, makes me feel desperate, and to be honest, it sometimes makes me angry. What do you advise? 
Here, I would like to preface this question with something that I have mentioned before. Um, there is something deeply antithetical to Aikido as a way and Aikido as an institution. What I'm trying to say is institutional behavior, institutional participation, such as within a federation, is it in its very nature antithetical to what you would be trying to achieve through an Aikido as a way, so as a Budo. Institutional Aikido, so federation Aikido, is something entirely different. You, you cannot do the things that you might see in my videos or the things that I describe from within an institution. It is absolutely, fundamentally impossible. So what I see here is exactly that. There, there is a kind of sociological fact here or a technological fact here. The student who is remaining in an institutional uh, body-mind cannot do these things. And as you cannot do these things, you either stay in the institutional body-mind or you reject the institutional body-mind. I think there's a lot of people that follow uh, us on the internet um, and they yet haven't come to terms with that because they're able to glean some small advancements in what they're doing, um, but this they have not yet bought into it because they still gain a lot of worldly things from their institutional participation. Um, and that's really no different than what we're seeing here. Uh, again, if we, as a historian of religion, what I would try to point out here in a chapter, if I was writing on this, is that the institution itself is a manifestation of the ego tripartite mind. And since the overall training involves the cessation of the ego tripartite mind, there's just no way, there's no way you can do that from within an institution. It's absolutely impossible. Again, if you look at the historical record, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see that. that every single person that has manifested what we, for simplicity's sake, would call the perennial philosophy was very much anti-institutional. And even though they're the traditions that sprouted up following their existence, let's say a founder, may at one point become institutional, even within that institutional history, you will see practitioners become anti-institutional along that history for this precise reason. You could also look at this historical record a little differently. Most of the founders of these types of traditions are... are are, as I said, anti-institutional, and as a result, they're often persecuted by the institutions that were existing at their time. In, in other words, 
the cessation of the ego tripartite mind is ipso facto the most revolutionary act in human history. It is, it is impossible to not generate in that cessation a revolution. It may be the case that the revolution is very small, perhaps um, reduced to the single individual. But that individual is very much a problem for the institution. It's solely by the, the, the number being so low that you might not see uh, a huge social upheaval. So, yes, if you come, as many uh, people that follow us, if you come from an institution, and you will if you let your egoic mind function without awareness, right? You, you're going you're gonna to be, just like in the first question, where you, you're going to be pulled by the gravitational energy of profession and career. Likewise, you're going to be pulled by the gravitational energy of what an institution, a federation, tells you, you should be uh, efforting towards these things. Rank, title, social approval, authentication outside of yourself. Go, you know, who's good? If you look at it, who's good? It's the people with rank, title, they run these seminars, right? But and, and everyone just accepts it. Just like everyone just accepts, yeah, money, let's put money at the center of our lives. Let's put consumerism at the center of our lives. How different is this from all the modern acceptance we have for all these different types of addictions that now go without question? Why, are they, why is it all so easily acceptable? Because they're all constructs from the ego tripartite mind. Again, if you look at the historical record, this is why you see people, as I said, they leave society. They're creating some distance, some, some space between these gravitational pulls that this institutions of society have on people. So as you try to do a practice where... The very, let's just take Aiki and Kokyu, let's take the internal aspects. The internal aspects are totally not possible without the practitioner's ability to reconcile the two minds. It's not possible that the Kokyu and Aiki are a consequence of that reconciliation. So to reconcile the two minds, you have to bring a cessation to the egoic mind. And once you do that, it's very hard for such a person to, to, to continue to participate in the social fictions of the Federation. It just feels repulsive. You're going to want to turn over the the money changer tables in the temple. You just can't do it. So if you cannot reconcile the two minds, and then the practice, what you're trying to achieve, becomes impossible 
Well, now you have to struggle with the impossibility of doing what is clearly a more advanced skill in light of an institution that tells you, you're already skilled. Don't you see our markers there? You have a Hakama, you have a Don ranking, you have a title. The, the body mind that cannot do Kokyo and Aiki is trapped in the egoic mind. The egoic mind manifests the institution as a reflection of itself. That egoic mind slash institution is not going to practice freedom from it. It's going to continue to do it. So it's going to say, no, no, no. This Aiki Kokyu, this reconciliation of the two minds, this is not a higher skill. My institution tells me I'm already skilled. I think you see this same sentiment in, uh, in how people watch our videos and don't, don't yet or cannot yet see that they're not doing it their teachers aren't doing it. Their shihan's not doing it. It's the same sentiment. It's the same trapping. No matter how clear and simple the descriptions are of what we're presenting, they just can't see it. Because in order to see it, you'd have to be able to reconcile the egoic mind and you'd be able to do it. When you can't do that, the institution is there to help you. I think as a dojo cho, as you develop your own practice, which is something that, you know, along these lines, it can only happen outside of an institution, right? So inside the institution, you don't develop your practice. That, that's why you, you just look out there. Just watch videos of people over the decades. They're doing the same demos, the same techniques. There's no true development. Because the main goal of an institution is to repeat itself. And to do that, it, it wants to keep things the same. So you watch someone, you, you know, now you, you can have videos of people 20, 30 years ago. Easily 20 years ago. And you'll see. They do the exact, the technique is exactly the same way. What, if, if you see any change, it's a degradation because due to age, their external applications are no longer able to generate the force necessary to overcome resistance. Um, even a cooperative uke who just messes up, and messes up the choreography and for this time went that way instead of this way. You'll see, oh, they, they can't do it anymore. But when you, when you become anti-institutional, understood as trying to bring a cessation to your egoic mind, you're going to be on the path of cultivation. You're going to see a transformation of your training. And this, this does lead to social problems inside the dojo because every deshi comes into the dojo with that egoic mind attachment and that egoic mind is going to do some things that I don't think dojo cho in federations even have to address they don't have to address it because cultivation is not present and I think a dojo cho that is truly on the path 
really has to learn these things. So let, let me go over some of the things that are not visible at first glance. One, your students are never going to see you. Never. Not until they gain the skill of awakening. And that means most students will never see you because most students will not gain that skill. What they will do instead is they will develop a representation of you that feeds their, the, their own institution of the egoic mind. You tend to become a super version of themselves. In the same way that moderns that are theistic have a view of God as a kind of genie, as a kind of superhero, is really a super version of themselves, like them at their best behavior, instead of the way pre-modern cultures understood God. Nameless, unknowable, unfathomable. In that same way, your deshi will come and they'll see you as just that kind of, you know, them to the X power. So their morality, they put it on you. They see you through their morality or they see you through their, their belief of what is wise, what is fair, what is just, what is powerful. And by that means, they reify their egoic existence. And sometimes in the modern world, it's, it'll seem good. It'll seem nice. But from the point of view of a legitimate, uh, a legitimate path, this is a corruption of the teaching. Just as understanding God as a genie or a superversion, a superhero is a corruption of the teaching, the same thing, they did the same thing to you. In truth, the sage that has reached communion with divine should be as unknowable and as nameless as the divine. This is where, throughout the episodes, my criticism of hippie Jesus comes in. Because that, for the modern Western, that's the ideal sage, hippie Jesus. This is, this, that's my critique of this antithetical vein to the training. But it happens over and over. It almost, as I said, it almost cannot happen. Only the other sage can leave another sage nameless. Everyone else makes them into a super version of themselves. But you can see the seed of discontent in that because it's delusional. You can see the kind of Jobian nightmare. So if you remember in Job, the book of Job, there's a sense of universal justice that Job and his friends all had. Basically, God was just a version of them. 
so they could understand why and how God works. And the way he should work is if we're good, we get good things. God serves us. That's the, the, the image of the teacher is reifying the egoic mind. And the lesson of Job is that's wrong. The, the, the student that has a chance is the student that leaves the teacher, such a teacher, a mystery. Which is very difficult to do because of the power of the egoic mind. So most people will have that, that initial reaction to that Job had. This is not fair, because, right? Because it's a delusional view, and eventually it's not going to go, it's, it's going to not be able to support your reification. And then they get upset. You must have been faking the whole time. You're a liar. Whatever other negative thing they'll come up with, because... It's asking the institution of their egoic mind to release and open and to not reify. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be pushback. And so this leads to a thing that I don't think most teachers face or are ready for. Is you're, never, you're going to be alone. You're not really helping people. You're a disruptor at best, a destroyer, a deconstructor. And if there is a deshi that can take advantage of that, they likely won't see the role you played. The mind doesn't work that way. And if they do, it's long after you're gone. So again, look at the historical record. Modern spiritual traditions, they're very ideational, they're very communal. Pre-modern traditions, no. There's a physical practice, and they're very isolating. And so I think as a teacher, you just have to get used to it. You, you use it as your own karma yoga. Do not be attached to the fruits of your labor. Let them not see you. Let them misidentify you. Practice your acceptance. Develop your skill at detachment. Let go of recognition and the need for it, of validation and the need for it. Let it all go and move closer to God. The next question requires a a, uh, a video critique. Now again, I think in Aikido's gentrified culture, it's very much looked down upon to point something out. Like to point out the emperor does not have clothes. But that does not serve us. That serves the institution. And so you might, if you are an institutionalist, if you're institutionalized, this is probably upsetting to you. You should just shut the episode off. I don't know why you're following me anyways. It kind of goes back to Nietzsche. I'm dynamite. I already mentioned, you're a destroyer, you're a deconstructor. 
So this one references a video, but I would preface this this way. I don't think the personality of the person in the video is at all important. Because what the person in the video does is just institutionalized Aikido. What is important for the person that is trying to break free of the egoic mind is to point out the institution. The, 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 the individual inside the representation of the institution is irrelevant. You could, you could pick anyone and they would demonstrate the same problematic behaviors. And again, behavior counts because we have a body-mind practice. When we talk about behavior, we're talking about being. What are you doing? We don't care about what you're saying. We know you're going to talk because you're a good modern. You're going to talk. You're going to exist. Your practice is going to exist at the level of language. You're a good modern. Aikido is a metaphor or a symbol. But you can't do the art as a way then. So the individual is not important. I think if you, if you feel inclined to either condemn the individual or support the individual in the discussion, yeah, you're institutionalized. I don't, I don't care who the person is. We're just looking at what is going on. What makes it possible? So here's the question. Hello again. I did not have a request for any video since my last message because what you upload is usually always something I have been questioning. While I can mostly comprehend what you explain, I don't have partners that understand, so it's almost impossible to practice. But the explanations still help a lot and I'm able to improve some techniques as I practice because of them. Concerning your post today, the one that I quote here, so here's the quote, the internal skills of which I speak stem from a communion of the defender's Tonden field with the attacker's Tonden field, which is for the most part invisible to third-party observers. And the utilization of a projecting and an adhering energy, which is visible, but now hard to believe, to a third-party observer. Back to the question. If you have the time and don't mind to share, either privately or maybe in a public video or post, can you tell if what you have explained is similar to what is in the video below? In the video... The video is Korendo Aikido, which in many ways is quite different from Osensei's Aikido. You're probably already familiar. I wonder if the Korendo stuff is just nonsense or if there's something more to it. Perhaps the idea explained is similar to yours. Would you mind sharing something about it? Maybe compare or simply reply that it's nonsense if you think so. I don't practice it myself, but the ideas are at least interesting to me. It does not look practical to me like your style does, but I've been trying to understand the concepts, and I'm wondering if what you explain and show is similar. I'll post the video in the, in the um, episode notes, and you can see it. 
Um, I kind of looked over it once. Again, it's very, very common. Um, the personality involved is not important. If I could tie up several statements, writings, podcast episodes here, I would, I would note the following. What, what is being demonstrated in the video is what some in Aikido today, in Federated Aikido today, have come to understand as the internal aspects. It gets different names, Aiki, Kokyu, one or the other, etc. And it has different understandings, like uh, it's fascia. They'll have material understandings. They'll have immaterial understandings. So on the material side, it could be fascia. Um, on the immaterial side, it could be uh, a kind of psyops, like you're getting in the Uke's mind or something, right? And stuff in between, right? So you have like, oh, it's energy. It's a electromagnetism, etc. And you tend to do things with it that are um, extraordinary. That's important in, in modern Federite Aikido. The internal things is extraordinary things. Or it's something that can be explained physically. You, you get both. You just have this gambit of what it is. There's a crisis there in terms of meaning. I would put before you that the crisis is, one, coming from a plethora of meaning and understanding. And I would put before you that any kind of crisis in meaning, it stems from an absence of shared experience. I think if there was a common experience to what is going on, that we wouldn't have this meaning crisis. What makes a lack of shared experience possible? There's no authentic, reproducible, provable skills out there. You don't, you don't have people able to do these things, and in light, people don't all have experience to them. And in light of that, people just fill in the gap, the meaning crisis with whatever they're doing. And that's how you get some people doing Aikido, totally denouncing it, and then other people saying, no, these internal skills are real, but out of those people, they don't all do the same thing. They don't all say the same thing. They're achieving different ends. So again, do an archaeology. You have to do an archaeology. Here you have to do the archaeology of East Asian culture. And as I've said elsewhere, kind of get us in the ballpark here, the idea of internal aspects of a martial art predate Japanese martial arts. You're going to look at... Uh, you're, it's also thereby going to predate Japan and Japanese so you're going to have to look at Silk Road culture. And when you look at the Silk Road culture, Japan is at the end of that route, that trade route. And earlier on, you're going to look at China, which wasn't China then, but we 
just for simplicity's sake, we'll call it China. The idea of internal aspects and where they fit in with your martial art was developed earlier or, or ahead of in the Silk Road than in Japan, for simplicity's sake, we'll say in China. When you look at Silk Road culture, unlike the West, there's not a concept of evolution. This is why I'm very critical through several writings of the theory of evolution, because it gets in the way of a practitioner's utilization of pre-modern technologies of self, which are required because modern technologies of self do not work. You're still going to go crazy, a reference back to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. If you look at Silk Road culture, they didn't have an idea of evolution. And as a result, there was a, as truth does always, there's kind of a pressure that truth has that shapes future truths. So, for example, uh, unlike having a notion of progress and advancement through time, Silk Road culture had the opposite because it was not based in a scientific or a scientistic epistemy. It was based in a concentric epistemy. So they looked at an earlier ideal era. And what each person who wanted to manifest the truth did is not generate a new truth at the rejection and cost of a previous era, but they instead used that previous era kind of like a golden age to justify and to see their replication as authentic in their own development of it. Yes, development took place, but unlike with an evolutionary paradigm, it did not take place at the cost of what preceded it. So whatever was developed over time never contradicted what preceded it. That such a thing would be untrue in such a culture. This is why, for example, if you fast forward through time and you get to O-sensei, he never, ever, in anything that he ever wrote, gave an original idea. He is simply developing ideas that preceded his time space because this is that culture. This is how truth is understood in that culture. This is why, for, but Westerners don't understand this. Federite Aikido does not understand this because Federite Aikido is a Western idea. And modern Japanese are Western Japanese. But this idea of advancement, as, of evolution, is where we have received the possibility of the idea that O-sensei advanced, evolved his techniques. And that's where you got the idea that he wasn't doing Daito Ryu, he was doing something else, something better, something more evolved. But when you look at the history, you go, whoops, that's actually not there. No, no Japanese person prior to this huge drive to be a Western Japanese would have ever denounced the traditions that gave them their skill for the sake of their new modern thing. That is entirely an Americanism.
And if you're seeing it now, you're seeing it just because of the power American culture has in the world. Where you don't see that power, such as, for example, in certain African areas or in certain Muslim areas, they, they are like, no, that's a crazy idea. That's a crazy idea that you're going to denounce the truths of preceding time spaces. Well, O-sensei was exactly the same way. Anybody who says that O-sensei saw the flaws in Daito Ryu or whatever art he trained in and he came up with a new art, that person knows nothing about East Asian culture. Such a position would totally inauthenticate what that person is doing would never happen. So we have this historical inertia that's happen happening through Silk Road culture. And, they, and those cultures develop the internal skills. They also identify them, and they come up with the means by which they are developed over time, space, over history. Now, granted you're going to see variation across history and across geography. That's going to happen. But there's going to be a, let's say, like a central thread that still makes its way through that dissemination of information because they share a culture, the Silk Road culture. And I think it's important to understand that because that can simplify things for Aikidoka who due to the lack of shared experience and due to the, which is made possible by the lack of skill in these attributes, is trying to do an archaeology of their own art to get back to what was commonplace. You, you need to understand this culture in the sense that it does not have a, a, a modern, scientific sense of evolution, and that there is this common thread that's going to weave itself through both history and geography up to O-sensei's art. And so for simplicity's sake, what I have done to help Aikido people who don't know this history, don't understand this cultural um, requirement, is to simplify things. And so... If you trace that history up to the present, I think Aikido people should look at authentic Tai Chi. Those internal skills, of course, with some sort of spectrum of variation uh, and also some sort of spectrum in skill development, are going to be present as those arts evolve through time, as they pass through time, it's going to still be present in Tai Chi. So, you again, the caveat here is not everybody in Tai Chi can do them. Not everyone in Tai Chi can uh, do them well. Because part of this history is exactly that. Not everyone's going to be able to achieve them, and not everyone's going to be able to achieve them at the same level. That's, that goes back centuries. 
So when you look at what you could see in high-level Tai Chi that is commonly accepted by the larger community as those skills and those skills done well, you would see those same skills being done by the founder of Aikido, Morihei Ueshiba. You also see the same cultivation training. Those things go together. So, for example, a lot of the religious practices, like uh, the, what moderns would call a religious practice of Osensei, because of how religion is actually understood in Silk Road culture, those things that Osensei did were not extra to the physical manifestation of his internal skills. They helped develop it, just like karma yoga helps develop a reconciliation of the egoic mind or a sensation of the egoic mind and the reconciliation of the God mind with the ego tripartite mind. How you relate to your job is your training. That training leads to that reconciliation of the two minds, which is necessary for a reconciliation energetically of yin and yang within your body, which is necessary for a jujitsu of non-contestation. But modern think, oh, his, his kami um, possession training is not relevant, and you just take it out. His prayer, not relevant, take it out. Let's just read what he says. Let's read some poems he said. Do you see? That's modern religiosity. Let's contemplate intellectually upon some statements, upon some text. But that's not what he did. So some means came with it. Anyone doing an archaeology has to put those means back in. You get some playroom, you know, some room to play, but you can't take them out. So there's some spectrum of variation, but there's this thread that goes through. And with that thread comes various means of developing those skills. And when you, and, and also some attributes that come with the training that are not necessarily either those skills or the, the drills or exercises meant to develop those skills. They're more of a consequence of having participated in the training. So I would point a new time listener to the blog, What is Aiki? Because I list several things that would be present in someone's life who actually can do Aiki at both, at, at three different levels of one's life. Your spiritual level, your energetic level, and your physical level. Aiki would manifest uh, this way across the board. And I'm just referencing easy to observe things. There's no end. If you look at the textual documentation, there's no end to how an internal skill like Aiki could or would manifest. All I'm pointing out in that article are easy-to-observe manifestations. You, you would read that as the following, in the following way. If you don't see these easy-to-observe manifestations, if you see opposite of that, you are not seeing Aiki. 
Okay, so we have these attributes, these drills and exercises, and these skills. And I would look to Tai Chi as something where a, an art or a practice that does not have this kind of gap or break in the internal aspects like Aikido has and does. This break in Aikido started right after the founder. And really, let's be honest, it started right with the institution. It started with the genesis of the Aikikai Federation. Again, we know why, not just from a historical point of view, but from this psychophysio point of view. What is an institution? It's a manifestation of the ego tripartite mind. Not the cessation. And we need the cessation to begin a reconciliation of that mind with the God mind. So when you start the federation and you start the Aikikai institution, that was it. That's it. The people that are more participatory in that institution will have these skills less and less. If you look at the people that had the skills after the effort to politically establish the Aikikai as the institution, those people are outliers. In some cases, villainized. They were not recognized as such as skilled. So we've mentioned in the past those people that O-sensei was willing and wanting to give 10th Dawn to, and we have the Aikikai's response to that. You can think of those people. You can also think of Tohei, who had developed these skills. How? By tracing, getting himself back to doing his own archaeology, getting himself back onto that thread of Silk Road culture and tracing it back to China. What happened to him? What did the institution do to him? It does what it does to everyone who turns over the money-changing tables. So to keep it simple again, to help Aikidoka that need to do an archaeology at a physical component level, you should be able to see the same, these same general skills that an authentic Tai Chi would be able to do as well. And these are a projecting force, the generation of a projecting force, and the generation of an adhering force. Now, you might want to go on and complicate this and say, by a particular means. And I would be fine with that, but... I don't, you can't have the projecting force and the adhering force by any other means. So you don't have to say it. And just to keep things simple, I should see a projecting force and an adhering force. And they're not, they're not plays on words. You're going you're gonna to use force to project Uke's mass in space. And you're going to use force to stick, adhere, Uke's mass to you, to your mass. There's all kinds that goes, there's all kinds of things that go with that. There's all kinds of things you can do with that. Again, it is infinite. I have seen some Tai Chi practitioners where I can't even fathom how they're doing what they're doing, but I can see that it is just a 
another element in this broad infinite spectrum is not contradicting this adhering force and this projecting force. You will at least be able to do these two forces. It has nothing to do, and, and uh, let me say it this way, You're, you can't psyops your way out of these two forces. What I mean by that is, if there is, and I don't, I don't believe this has anything to do with anything, but, and I don't believe it's very strategically sound, but oftentimes there is in modern Aikido this conflation of Aiki with uh, manipulation of the Uke's intention. I call that psyops. If you are able to manipulate an uke's intention, but you are not able to, to, to demonstrate this projecting force and this adhering force, then I don't care. That's not the, you're not doing the internal skills because you're contrary to that thread, that cultural thread that's running through the entirety of Silk Road culture when it developed notions of internal aspects. You have to be able to demonstrate these two skills, even if you go on to demonstrate other things. Those skills have to be there. The means have to be there too. Your, your practice, your Aikido, whatever is your Aikido, it must include technologies that are oriented and geared towards an egoic reconciliation. Absolutely mandatory. And showing up to the dojo and just doing kihon waza, that's not it. That doesn't do it. It does the opposite. It reifies the ego. Those, those exercises, those technologies, those drills, they will be in your training. They will, in fact, in terms of time-wise and in terms of effort, they will overwhelmingly dominate how much time and effort you give to Kihon Waza. But you don't see that in modern Aikido. Kihon Waza is the bulk of the training. And then you would see these attributes that I mentioned. Um... I think key is a kind of um, the center of the torso. It, it, it will develop. It will physiologically develop. It will thicken. It will um, demonstrate, represent uh, more power. It's, it's not going to be this wafy, fragile, hyper-articulating, concaving area on the body. I think you'll also see um, a suppleness in the body. You, you will not see stiffness, rigidity, stiff ankles, stiff knees, stiff pelvis, just in, the, just in the way the person walks or stands, just as a result of doing these exercises. And then, to me, what I guess what I'm trying to say, these are all easily observable. And if you're not observing and you're looking at something else, which means it's not it.
So when I watch the video, for example, I look at the uke's body, and the uke's body does not have this, these torso attributes. It has the opposite. So I know, I know those, those drills and exercises, they're not being done there. I look at the nages, very stiff, stiff knees, stiff ankles, stiff pelvis. It, the, the drills are not being done there. And there's no projecting or adhering. Something else is going on. They're, tr they're trying something else. So let me pull out an, an easily observable something else. Because it's very common in, in Aikido lineage. And it is the uke um, experiencing some sort of pain response. Some sort of hyperstimulation of the nervous system. That is not, you don't see that in in that common thread along the Silk Road. This is deviation too far outside of what is historically precedent. That is what's taking the place of the true, authentic, mechanical, or energetic manipulation that is commonly accepted in the internal arts. That's something else. And I would say it's not it. There's some other things that as, as you would watch the video. But first, you know, before we go on, let's, let's, let me preface this for people that haven't been following this. And because I want to point you to a, to a video that I did where I clearly demonstrating the projecting force and the adhering force. Okay, the first thing to note is the, these, uh, just like all of Kihonwaza, but especially drills and exercises that I'm talking about. So, for example, kokyuho, kokyudosa, that's a drill and exercise. That's not even a waza. The thing with drills and exercises, as well as kihon waza, is these are cultivation fields, or, or better said, these are ritual fields. So, let's, ko, ko, kihon waza is a ritual field. Kokyudosa is a cultivation field. So as I've said before, Kihon Waza is an if-then ritual. It is an exercise that is rule-governed so that you generate the physical properties, the energetic properties, and the spiritual properties which lead to your religious cultivation. And here we can understand religion as, you know, what stops you from going insane, what keeps you well, what fulfills your humanism as an organism, as a creature. How should you live? That is what Kihon Waza is. Kokudosa is the exercise where you cultivate these internal aspects. And as a drill, as an exercise, it's entirely not practical. It's not, it's not looking to be, nor is it an application. As all drills, space-time has been idealized for a reduction of variation, brought about by an increase in cooperation, 
and also a prolonging a prolonging of the manifestation of the skill wishing to be cultivated. Because that's what leads to further and further and further refinement of the skill. You're going to design an exercise wherein that skill is more likely going to show up than not show up. Or the environment or the context for that skill is going to likely show up more than not show up. And you're going, to, you're going to manipulate the environment to such a degree that you can prolong for how long that skill shows up. That's how you do refinement. There's not a martial art around from empty hand to firearms that does not do drills and does exactly that thing at a structural level. Because that's how you develop skill. What's happened over time is as many people that do not have an awareness or an experience of the internal aspects of the art, you also have practitioners that do not understand what else is involved in a martial art besides those drills and skills. And this is how, for example, you have these Tai Chi masters that want to get into a fight with an MMA person thinking that they're going to get this prolonged adhering or this prolonged projection because they can do it in their drills that have been entirely idealized for the cultivation of that skill. That is not how the internal skills function martially. Meaning, the cultivation exercise is an idealization for the particular agenda at hand, which means by default it is not reality, which means you have to know a lot of other stuff. It also means you're not going to do those skills in that way when you try to do them in reality. So in my experience, for example, in a drill exercise that's meant to prolong the manifestation, let's say of Aiki, adhering, adhering in a real life situation is like fractions of a second. That's all you need though. Projecting, for example, it does not have to be 20 feet across the mat in real life. It just has to be fractions of an inch. It works. So an obvious one, you have, because all combat is about fractions of an inch, fractions of a second. It never goes away from that. But between an adhering and, and a projecting force that's generating fractions of an inch and fractions of a second, you can generate kazushi that allows you to draw a weapon you're just easy peasy. It's easy as all hell. And weapons are the great equalizer. And if the other person doesn't have a weapon, then you have the huge advantage. But if you look again at the textual record, you would see that. You would see empty hand skills support weapon skills. They're used to get you to your weapon, keep your weapon, stop the guy from getting to his weapon. They're all weapon oriented because in real life, weapons count. 
So, okay, so you're doing Cocudosa. You're, you're looking at an idealized field for the, for the reasons of cultivation. So in the video, and I'll post it, it's a, it's a reel on Facebook, and it's called Cocu and Ike. You're going to see the projecting energy, and you're going to see the adhering energy. There's something you should pay attention to. The uke does not do anything to demonstrate the two energies. This means, first and foremost, it doesn't matter what the uke is thinking. So it's not a psyops thing. It doesn't have anything to do with the uke's intention. It doesn't have anything to do with my intention as nage. No amount of intellectual processing, no amount of intellectual imagining is going to generate these two forces. It's not possible. Just like no amount of intellectual processing and no amount of intellectual imagining on Uke's part is going to counter these two forces. It's irrelevant. When you see the internal aspects confused with psyops, you're seeing that's one of those answers that is a result of this lack of experience with these skills. That's, that's a corruption of the teaching. But if you look at moderns, and moderns are heavily into the intellectual aspect of their being, you can see why they would land on that. So the takeaway here, a thing to observe, is like Uke is not doing anything. You'll see that in, in the Uke's body. If it's not visible, well, I think it should be. I think everyone should be able to see when some other force is other than a self-generated force, I think everyone should be able to see, oh, that, there's, I don't know how that force was generated, but some other force is now affecting the mass of the uke. I think everyone should see that. You, if you're going to want to do an archaeology and you're going to want to gain access to this, you have to not go, I don't know how that force generated, so uke must be doing it. That's not how it works. You must look and go, I don't know how that force got generated, but it's clear it's a separate force from what Uke is doing to their own body. So you must be able to tell equally when Uke is doing a force on their own body. So bring these into the video, and I would show you, yeah, if first look at the torso of the Uke and the Nage for those physiological attributes from having participated in the drills, you won't see that in the Uke in the video. Then secondly, I would look for, is the uke having some force acting upon their body or is the uke doing something themselves to their own body? And when you do that, you're going to see that uke is jumping. Uke is jumping into the ukemi. Now, the only reason, again, go, go back, that, again, that means by default the Naga doesn't have that force working on the Uke's body. So the Uke is jumping on the body. But if you go deeper, 
the fact that uke can jump is telling you that the nage is not controlling the uke's tanden field as I described in the quote that the person included in their question. The uke who has to jump is the uke who can jump. And the uke who can jump is the uke who has control of their own tanden. When you take that into an application and you're looking for those hundreds of a second and fractions of an inch, that agency is where an actual attacker or fighter is going to counter whatever you're doing. And that's why there will be no application there. You won't get it to work. They'll move their body. They, don't, they won't move their body into the fall that your choreography is requiring. They move their body to maintain their balance, to regain an angle of attack, to uh, develop the necessary angle of deflection. Do you see? They'll move their body. They'll counter you because they can. Because their tanden field is not for those fractions of an inch and hundreds of a second, second being controlled by you. They'll just move. So these two, these, these several things here, so the lack of physiological development, uh, the lack of suppleness in the, in the nage, regardless of age, it's irrelevant to age. The agency in the uke, jumping, this displacement of adhering and projecting energy or forces with some sort of like taser-like effect on the nervous system, the preoccupation with the psyops, all of this is telling me this is not it. This is not it. You need to look elsewhere. Well, thank you, listeners, for your questions, and I hope other people got things out of it. Um, I will include a link to that reel, and I'll also include a link to our latest Gateway video, Gateway 9 on how these internal skills get rid of common problems in external federite Aikido. I think it's relevant to this as you pull it out. Again, please consider donating towards our efforts here. It's greatly appreciated. It's not much to ask. And uh, please, peace be with you and continue your training going deeper and deeper. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Budo the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S E N S H I N C E N T E R.com. Or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.